Hello everyone, I'm Reverend Carla. Welcome to Spirituality Matters. And now I invite you to settle in and let's find that sacred space between here where I am and there where you are. And let us be reminded that the Holy transcends our physical bodies and our time together is just as sacred and meaningful as if we were sitting beside one another. Okay, let's get started. And friends, I am so excited about today's podcast interview. This is Jamie Mailer. Jamie is a licensed mental health professional, and I met Jamie on TikTok. Jamie, welcome. It's such an honor to have you here. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I love talking about all things religious deconstruction, all of that stuff. So happy to be here. Well, we'll have so many things to cover. I can almost see this being like a part part one and two, but we'll, we'll just see where this goes today. So Jamie, you and I became acquainted, like almost, I think the week I, I hopped on TikTok, I found you um, after I think I posted something about what I, I termed passive conversion therapy. And you shared that and what I, what I was um, finding my words around some of these things where I, the things I experienced in church. And one of those was this concept of a welcoming church that welcomes the LGBTQ community in, but they have boundaries on on parts of the church life that they can't uh, participate in. And both you and I have shared content on TikTok, which by the way, if you are not following, at the end of this uh, podcast, we'll give uh, Jamie an opportunity to share what's going on in her life and how you can work with her. But if you are not following her on TikTok, my friends, every video is like a therapy session. You can start taking notes, even your funny ones, and even the ones where you're sharing, where you're showing up vulnerable, but at Recollected Self. And like I said, we'll also put these in the show notes so you can, uh, you can find her. But what I've seen, especially when I share things about what spiritual abuse is and using what some people, a phrase that a lot of people have never even heard of, which when, when you deal with it all the time, you think other people are aware of it, but that is religious trauma. And I know that that is something that you talk with about quite often. And I just want to open the floor and allow you to speak what your experience has been with uh, working with people and especially some of the content that you share on your social media platforms. Of course. So you, yes, you are so correct. Many people have reached out to me saying I wasn't even aware religious trauma was a thing. And it's, yeah, you're right. Every time I hear that, I get shocked because I'm so immersed in it, but it's absolutely true. There's so many people that conceptualize what they went through in the church and they categorize it in a certain way. And that's actually very common with the clients that I work with. Um, so I do coaching, but I also do um, obviously individual therapy. Um, and one of the things that I hear a lot is people normalizing what they went through, whether that's, you know, childhood abuse, relationship abuse, many times they reserve that and do not allow that category applied to religious institutions, their religious leaders, um, possibly their parents that led them into the religion. And it's almost a protected entity that does not get allowed to be processed that way. And when I introduced these ideas or certain phrases or things that were honestly indoctrinated into us or resonated a lot when we were kids, when I point them out as potentially psychological or psychologically damaging, many times hearing it that way is almost like that snap out of it moment for many people where they say, wait, that 
tracks that really does hit it it actually makes sense of why that actually damaged me in some way and so really what we're doing is we're putting we're putting terminology to what religious trauma is um there's a couple of things that i'm sure um i'm sure you'll have like a research page or something but there's um a lot of up and coming um religious trauma conferences there's uh an entire movement trying to get religious trauma syndrome or rts into literature like psychiatric literature so we can actually honestly have some firmer ground to stand on um but remember and i always tell people like whoever is listening that just because it's not in a book doesn't mean it's not real many times the things we go through um aren't related perfectly in the DSM-5, which is our most current diagnostical manual in psychology. So none of this is meant to be, oh, well, it's not valid enough for me to process, right? It's, it's real. It's, it exists. And the more we create shared language around it, the more we can actually process it individually, but as a collective as well. That last part is so important because sometimes we, we don't have the words. We just know that there's something wrong inside. One question I have for you is the people that have reached out to you that where you have spoken about religious trauma and it, and it's pinged them. It's, they feel it. They feel that uh, call to try to explore more about how that's connected to some of what's hurting inside. Do you see that more with people who are uh, deconstructing. And for, for new followers, we, we use that phrase around people who have moved away from their religious heritage and are looking to explore spiritual paths or, or really some people are rejecting spirituality altogether. Do you see that they're trying, they're still entrenched in religion or is it someone who is also trying to deconstruct and find their spirituality else, elsewhere? I think, I've, I think it's hard to speak in very general terms here, because I think when we look at deconstruction, it's almost like this huge, I don't know, it's like the Appalachian Trail where like different people, it's super, super long. And some people have started and, you know, stopped. I was just doing, so I'll talk about this later, but I have my own podcast. We were just interviewing this morning. And it's interesting when people talk about where they're on the journey And they almost try to like validate where they're on the journey. They're like, oh, well, I just started. So I don't know. And it's like all, all points of the journey are valid, Mm -hmm. including going back to the faith system that you had. And then go, we called it an ebb and flow going in and out of the belief system, feeling aligned and then feeling not aligned. All of that is allowed. All of that is allowed. So when you're asking me like, where are they typically at? Um, I actually think I see many people on just different stages. So I have people that when it resonates, I think usually they're in the questioning phase. They're in the, I have these like little constructs of deconstruction and how I've tried to develop language around it. But the questioning phase would be more for, I'm trying to come to terms with what the questions are trying to define the questions, trying to allow space for the questions, trying to be okay with not having an answer. And when you hear someone present a topic, you know, where, hey, this might be religious trauma, or this might be religious or spiritual abuse. When you hear that, and it resonates, it's, it might be the questioning phase. um, And then it, being allowed to be absorbed would be more of the processing phase and where that ends up is usually 
whether or not you're walking forward on your journey or you're ebbing and flowing back to it. So it's very complex. And I, I want to say that it's hard to quantify, you know, where someone is, where, when I say something like impactful, or when I say something that is, um, I'm trying to think of like, even a thing that might've impacted you, Carla, like when I talk about, um, like phrases that honestly are painful for people to hear that has a plan. Um, you know, he, everything happens for a reason. God's testing you. You know, when I talk about that as actually some variation of manipulation, sometimes that hurts people to hear because they're like, that wasn't my intention. And I, and I explain to people when you're deconstructing, some of that is, some of that feels like, uh, almost weaponized, almost weaponized. Like I weaponized God's I don't know, omnipotent, like whatever, omniscience, like um, all knowing, like I weaponize that to try to keep you into the faith system. And so that can hit for different reasons, right? So someone can be in the beginning stages of deconstruction and it can hit, or they can be way far deeper. And then they encounter a family member or a religious leader that comes back into the fold and says like some weaponized statement and that can hit hard too. That can be a ping. That can be a kind of how you're referring to it. It can be this moment of, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm in pain or this is hitting hard. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I would answer. I, I want to make sure I answer the question for oh, you. You, you did. You answered it beautifully, especially talking about those phrases, because I think for so many of us, um, I, I personally, I've been doing deconstructing now for, uh, almost 10 years, 10 solid years. And when I think, and I, I now understand that I'm never going to stop deconstructing and how it's, how it's entrenched into how it might be committed to this deconstruction process, uh, ensures that I will continue to heal. And just this weekend, I had a moment where I said something that where someone was holding the space, but I, I said something about, oh, he looks like Jesus. And I, I said it in the middle of a, of a conversation about a, a white person on, on TikTok and actually his experience about getting mass reported as we were talking about earlier. And thankfully this person said, you mean your indoctrinated white belief and I, there for a brief second, Jamie, it was like, oh, I got a little defensive, but wait a minute. That was so true. How did I just do that after 10 years, but how easy it is to slip back, but, but also understanding that I was already triggered because this person is getting mass reported and he's thinking about going private for a while. Mm. And it's like, oh, the world needs him right now. He's, he's doing so much good. So in that place of being unbalanced, look what showed up for me as almost like I just went, I reverted back into some old patterns and how easy I haven't said anything about anybody looking like Jesus forever. It just, without qualifying in, in some way, but yeah, those, those phrases are a big one. When you talk about religious trauma with one of your uh, with one of your followers or your clients, do you see a connection with how we you mentioned the indoctrination to the religion? And I'm going to park that. We're going to come back to that. But also our our past experiences, our family experiences, or things that happened even in our education. I can look think back now. Um, you know, I was, I'm a boomer, 
So I was raised during a very strict educational system in the 60s. I can see how that provided indoctrination to me, like you don't question authority. But do you, do you see a connection with how people deal with trauma or try to suppress trauma based on their, their uh, family backgrounds or some of their trauma that they might be carrying from other life experiences? So I just want to make sure I'm understanding the question. So kind of how the family system has influenced their processing of questioning authority. Yes. Is that it? Okay. Yes. Or yeah. Or even like you're holding trauma that you don't even know. I found that a lot in spiritual care when uh, that around 50s, around 40s or 50s, the suitcase of everything that we've been carrying gets a little heavy. I think it's that time in our life where there's a, this, there's a spiritual collision with who we are and our authenticity. So you're either going to really try to lug that suitcase around and things get really wobbly, or you decide to lay it out and start to get things out. And that's the kind of way we process spiritual care. But a lot of times you, it, it would go back into a place where there's trauma, which then we would invite in a licensed therapist to come in and start working through that. Cause I knew what my part was and what the therapist part was just to qualify that for anybody who thinks that spiritual counseling is it taking the place of licensed therapy. absolutely not we trust Carla (laughs) (laughs) but that's what we would often see is that we are conditioned to suppress things in a certain way depending on our demographics our generational Mm. our age and things like that is that does that give you a little bit more right and so yeah I would say it's interesting because there are levels of how much we are allowing ourselves to come to terms with these questions, right? And so if we're talking to people who are wherever they are on their journey, um, I think that you coming to terms with even not even religious, but your tendency, almost if we generalize it, right? How do you process emotions? Do you have a tendency to not process them when they come to you and do it later right and when you do it later that's we're not like quantifying whether we're not um creating judgment around like the timeline right now but what i mean by the tendency that you have of how you're processing emotions so if your tendency is to not process emotions until a later time it's it very much, or it very well may be from the way your family taught you how to process emotions. Okay. So there are some families where they're, they're going to ask you to bring it out right away. Right. And you probably know people like this where they're like, you got something to say, say it right now. Right. Which, you know, has its own implications, but then we have the alter, like the alternative to this, which is we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. Whatever it is, we don't talk about it, right? Oh, dad's mad. Why is he mad? We don't talk about it, right? And so there are certain family systems that really do teach you to experience emotion almost with a delayed onset, if not, if you even experience them, right? Even if you're allowing yourself to experience them. And when you're, when you're asking about how this gets applied to religion, tie God into that and how questioning any of this could have implications to your eternal salvation. So now that's just another layer of why you wouldn't bring that more, that much emotion back up to the surface, right? Because if you already had a question, and this is actually something that I can, I don't know if you want me to get a little of my history, but this is actually exactly something. My that, next question was to invite well, you. Well, yeah. So I mean, yeah. So what's interesting about suppression and then also kind of the deeper 
relationship with repression. Um, I think I had a relationship with both of those things when I was in my religious indoctrination phase or whatever. So I remember having my authentic voice. And I always tell people this, that especially my religious deconstruction folks that I work with individually, or even in the mass group with TikTok, many times people forget that they do have an internal system. They have an intuitive, we can call it a spirit. We can call it a knowing mind. We can call it a wise mind. We can call it a couple of things. We can call it the unconscious mind. Um, There's a couple of things that we can call it. I always try to remind people that it most likely was in some cases actually beaten out of you, or it was emotionally beaten out of you. And so when you look at it like that and people wrap that around God, it's very complex because when I talk about my own journey of how it probably started off with suppression and then eventually turned into repression, the idea of when I started really diving into my faith. So I was always, so I can tell the listeners, I was always um, raised in the Catholic faith and we were, we weren't nominally Catholic. We were very involved in the faith. It was very much part of our life. We would go to school, like Sunday school, and we would go to um, church services whenever they offered them. And we would go to daily or not daily mass, but we would go to weekly mass. Um, And so it was always part of my life. And it wasn't until I was older that I started taking it more seriously. And I remember thinking like, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to be, which is very much on par for my personality, if I'm going to be Catholic, I'm going to be Catholic. Like I am going to be the Catholic, you know? Um, And so I started really diving into it and going to Bible studies and doing all these youth integrations and doing all of that stuff. And I remember hearing certain parts of the faith system that did not resonate with me. And, and I don't mean even resonate, like I have this all knowing, I know everything. I know a lot of people who are like, you don't know, how do you know more than God? And and that's, that's a problem in and of itself. But Mm -hmm. I, I remember hearing certain teachings. So a couple of them right off the bat were teachings about women and their experience in marriage, um, like certain teachings on birth control, uh, the LGBTQ stance. There was a couple of very visceral teachings that I remember having that moment of, I don't know. I don't know how this is gonna, how this is going to ever settle in my soul. So what my choice was that was laid out before me is I either be a good Catholic and somehow learn to suppress that voice, or I am eternally damned. Like I am eternally damned. And I listen to that voice and I figure out where that's coming from. And I figure out what that means. Right. And so the alternative was way too unknown, way too scary, way too much wilderness talk. Like I would be walking straight into the, you know, unknown. And I was so uncomfortable there. So it was so much more comfortable to just push that voice down, even though it really hurt me in the end it was so much more comfortable in the meantime to just push her deeper into my faith and suppress that voice. And so if anything, when I'm working with some of my religious trauma folks or the deconstruction folks that are starting, um, it's this idea of what is that voice and where is that voice? 
And how do we learn to get to know it again? And how do we learn to nourish that voice and not be scared of that voice? I'm telling you, Carla, like one of the things that just came out. So I, like I said, I recorded earlier and my guest was talking about never trusting herself. And when I tell you um, the themes that I get from religious deconstruction is we were trained to not trust ourselves because we didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. God knows everything. And in reality, God was represented by many times, I don't want to generalize everything, but many times a white male figurehead of sorts, which is like a priest or a pastor or whoever was in charge of the council or whatever. And that was a representation. So to question that is to question God. And then to question God is to to question salvation. And it gets very muddy, very fast for people who want to start trusting themselves. And when I say there's almost like themes that come out of religious deconstruction, it is. It's themes of, I don't even know its identity. It's themes of identity of who you are with, with and without the religion. And it's themes of trust. What does it mean to trust yourself? What does it mean to trust that voice, Carla? Like, what does it mean to trust that voice? I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I do know, but like, it's, I don't think we know in the beginning. I don't even think people believe they have that voice. I don't think they believe they have it. And so if I sat there and I was like, was there ever a time? And they're like, I don't know. Like, I don't, I just remember every time I would think that I'd be like, I'm literally getting possessed by a demon or something. And I swear to God, that's the trauma. Like as much as it sounds silly to us on the other side of it, it was so real. When I tell you, I would convince myself that indulging any of that suppressed voice was me leaning into Satan, was me leaning into demonic presence in my life. It was viscerally real to me. Mm. So much so that I would go to bed thinking I need to protect myself with prayer now because I just thought that maybe this isn't true. And that thought is obviously not from God. And so when we're taught that that voice is now a presence that is external and not internal, it's externally happening to us. It's a demonic presence. It's a satanic influence. It's something that is not of God. And if, I mean, I'm not going to go into it, but what's ironic about it is I'm a firm believer. We're not going to go into my whole belief system right now, but I'm a firm believer that if there is any divinity ever in this world, it is found deep in our authentic selves. That's so good. And so when people say, do not trust yourself, they're saying, do not trust that divine source that's trying to lead you to self-honor, to self-preservation, to self nourishment and honoring and all of these things like that's where we take care of the source right that that's not allowed you can't do that work when you are being demon when that voice is being demonized that i know right now that people are going to stop and rewind everything that you just said because that was so so powerful and A lot of times when the people that I've talked to or comment on my videos will will often say, I don't know the difference between me and my identity inside church. I don't know what that is. I'm so confused. And when they finally, even though it it becomes so suffocating and they decide that what's what, that, that their religion or their church, their spiritual community no longer serves them. They have to leave. They don't know why they're turning to this 
but they're looking for the same construct because that's all they know. So if there's a way that you can give them, well, show me the 10 steps to be spiritual. But what you're doing is offering them a mirror and mm -hmm. saying, I'm going to show you that it's, it's inside you. It's where I, I said, and I don't mean to be glib when I say this, but it's like, click your heels because you've always had the power to go in, but, but religion has taught you to look out, to be reliant upon them. That was so, that was so good. So powerful. I mean, I, and you're going to hear, you're going to hear this. So this is the theme that usually comes out. And this is my therapist in me that does create this parallel for people. It's scary for people to hear this parallel. I think it's absolutely valid and it doesn't have to be, it's not exclusive. There is a parallel here though. When I tell people that one of my subspecialties, obviously it's my sub-interest, my subspecialty is religious trauma. I also have a subspecialty of helping people after post-toxic or post, I don't always label it narcissism, but mm. variations of toxicity in relationships. And therefore this has been years and they've been taught how to operate as a human being in a, in a really rough, toxic relationship. So what do I see the themes? And when I tell you I was writing the religious trauma workshop, as I was writing it, it was like dawning upon me that I was writing the narcissism workshop. <laughs> um, and I do not mean that it's always exclusive to narcissism. But when I tell you, when you're healing from a system that trained a new identity into you, okay, that wasn't your own. It wasn't even your own. It was that I am who I, I am who they say I am. Mm. And why do you, okay, you got to stay with me on this train for a second, but I why do so right many with, religious yeah. people struggle with codependency? And I've seen this so many times. The answer stares us in our face is because if you read the, honestly, any, any like fellowship, any um, accountability groups, anything that's indoctrinated into religious systems uh, or not indoctrinated, but to us from religious systems, the idea is you are your brother's keeper. You are accountable for their salvation. You are part of the system. So there is no, there is not a lot of room for your individuality because you're your son, your daughter's keeper, your mother's keeper, your partner's keeper, like whatever. You are not just you, you are this system. And therefore you are, when that person sins, you are impacted. Your pride is going to get hit. Like you, that whole thing of like, do not, do not do that because the family's going to look bad. That whole concept gets taught in religious concepts. It gets taught of like, if you do that, then the church looks bad. If you do this, then the, then our family looks bad and our family's religious. So like, that's a problem, right? And so the problem with looking at leaving faith systems is that you're looking at the abuser or the toxic entity and you realize that you learned how to operate and apply your identity in that relationship. Okay, so this is where you have to stay with me. What you just spoke to is how you keep looking externally, right? You say, just tell me who I am. Just tell me who I am, right? The parallel is so profound when I work with people who are post-toxic relationships because they do not see that there were certain things they learned to look for, to normalize, to allow 
and there are certain characteristics that they might be honestly attracted to. They might be attracted to certain characteristics. And when I tell people that the most vulnerable you are post you leaving one religion for another similar religion is right after is because there are certain traits you're looking for for security. And that's what you were just talking about, Carla, which is it has to not come from the external anymore. Mm. It has to be work done inside. And so every time I'm working with someone who's post-toxic relationship, I say, we're not victims blaming. I am not sitting here and saying you are at fault for what that church did to you or for what that human being did to you. But I want you to look inward and I want you to ask yourself what things are attracted to you right now or what, not even what are attracted to you. What are you attracted to? What are you attracted to? Organization, structure. Do you like being told what to do? Why do you like being told what to do? Well, what would happen if I like, what, what would happen if I was the one who made decisions? And I'd be like, what would happen? Well, I would make bad decisions. Okay. Well, would you learn from those bad decisions? Well, I don't want to, I don't want to be responsible for the bad decision. Okay. So who's responsible for it? I guess the person who told me not to do like, do you see what I'm saying? It's like always outside of you. Right. And so I tell people like healing from this, from these, from these like indoctrinated expectations for your life is actually very hard because you're coming to terms with like, you're right. I do like to be told what to do. You you're right. I do like when I don't have to make a decision. So God was that person for me. God would make the decision for me. So I look at them and I'm like, so do do you have like autonomy for your decisions? Like, do you dictate the decisions or does someone else do that for you? And that's not victim blaming. It's claiming what has been trained into you, which is I like certain things. I get attracted to certain systems. I get attracted to certain dynamics, power dynamics, right? I might like the place they used to put me in. So that's what kept me in so long. And it's like, see, but if we do not see the theme of expectations, you're going to find yourself in a similar religious system. It's just going to be a different set of rules and expectations, right? It will play out the same way. Same thing with post-toxic relationships is I tell people, if we do not hold space for right now in this moment, I am not trying to do, like I am not trying to do um, like catastrophic thinking here. I will tell you, we replay the same traumas until we learn. We replay the same traumas. We replay the same relationships. Oh, that's good. People don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that. Especially post after they just got out of a relationship. And I say, we will enter a relationship that will not be exactly the same way, but it'll play out similarly until we learn the skills it takes to identify where we need to change. So yes, that was a long-winded way of answering that question, but yes. It it was it was beautiful because you you were able to bring in how any kind of trauma impact how it impacts every aspect of our lives. And it and it reveals to us where we are holding on to things where we still find comfort. One question I have for you um, is I notice for the people who follow. This is really going to be anecdotal, but I just want to get your insight on this. I, primarily uh, a female, a people identifying female um, mm-hmm. or that are um, 
stepping into their authenticity as a female. And then, of course, we have a we have a large LGBTQIA plus community who follow us. But I'm wondering about the the male because this, religious trauma is across the board. It doesn't discriminate. But I wanted to see what you saw in your practice. Is that just is that just in the therapy field in general that more more people who are that that I that identify or uh, show up as women, uh, whether they're cisgender or trans or hetero, do you do you see that being more of the case? And if so, why is that too big? Or is no? That- I think it. I think it. I think it actually tracks with the general theme of mental health, actually. So I do think, so here's exactly what we were just talking about, how trauma shows up, let's apply it to religion right now, but it will show up and have similar themes. Same thing with mental health and any processing, right? So if we're processing like what religious trauma is, that's processing an internal mechanism. You're doing internal processing. You're doing emotional processing. You're doing very heavy lifting when it comes to being humble and acknowledging that there are certain parts of you that need healing and there are certain parts of you that are flawed. And that's the problem is many people hear that and they think I'm victim blaming. Like, did you see what the church did to me? Like, why are you blaming me? And I'm saying, we just have to, we have to hold space with how we were morphed into certain beings that had expectations and that changes the way we apply how we apply and show up to life like how we apply those systems into our life and so when we think of our people who identify as men it's like we think about and I'm going to just use the term men right now in a general sense that's what I mean okay so when we look at men many times what men are asked to do is to just they're doers right? They're doers. They, they just got to show up. They got to get the work done and then they got to get out of there. Right. And women are always looked at as more of the, um, like processors. They, they process emotion. They, they express emotion more. They can hold space for more emotion. Um, they're the emotional creatures and men are the, you know, physical creatures that, you know, just are put to action and they just show up. Right. And what's sad is that I think it just follows the general cultural narratives of how men get taught. They, they don't really have, there's no real space for their emotions Mm. and there's no place for, there's no place for your questions. There's no place for your I don't, I mean, everything that women go through when they're struggling with their deconstruction, it's just sad because I think men actually, to me, what's actually the most sad part about in general mental men's mental health is that if you've looked at any statistics actually, and, um, you know, this is a slight trigger warning, but if you've looked at any statistics, the men's statistic for suicidal or suicidal, like completion is astronomical. Um, and it's very, it's, there's like it's so stark if you ever look at the stats and women are more likely to like attempt but not complete right and they usually say oh well it's because men choose more lethal means and they you know all of, there's all these stats on suicidality or whatever but what i f- find sad is that there's all of these stats of how many women 
seek help. They, you know, how many women are going to therapy, how many women are doing this X, Y, Z when they're, they're tending to their own emotional processing. And then you look at my stats and I'm sure you could look at your stats. I know this is sheer anecdotal, but mine's really pathetic. Like mine's, I think 85 women, um, and you know, the rest men, and I'm sitting here like that's, it's not even close. Mm. That's not even close. And there's some therapist on the app. That's like 4% men. Like I've seen stats like come up and they're like, this is pathetic. Right. And it's, it's just anecdotal and it's just TikTok. And yes, I actually think more, honestly, this is just my two cents. I think more women are on TikTok right now. Um, but that's just my two cents. That's just my two cents. That's stats or anything. But um, I think what, when we're looking at the greater picture though, is do men think they have a place in this narrative? If they don't think they have a place, they're not going to show up. Yeah. And many times, and this is actually something that I can, I probably am at fault with, is many times women deconstruct because of the patriarchy. And so when men are trying to do that, they're almost at odds with the system that plays in their favor, right? And so then there's that whole guilt thing that they're dealing with because they're like, I feel guilty for being a man, right? And it's like, that's even more complex because they see how the system worked for them and then they have that added layer of, you know, what does it mean now that I'm, you know, questioning it? So, I mean, it's not a perfect answer, but I do think it just tracks with the general themes for mental health. I really think it just tracks with the themes that we see. If you could provide those suicide stats, I will put those. In the- I want to say, yeah, I'm even looking at like, I'm sure they're not even recent, but I'm. Um, like even probably from probably before the pandemic might be a little bit more, I don't want to say accurate, but I'm sure the pandemic did not help like because of the huge implications. But I mean, even looking at probably like the last 10 years, like a collective data or a metadata, like it's just sad. And that's actually like what you're going to find. And some people who are going to, you know, maybe have two cents to, to add to this conversation. It's like, well, men usually choose very lethal means. And so of course they're going to complete more. And that is something to be said is the, the method that men typically use, which we won't go into, but it's just, it's just more likely to end in death. Well, that, that's a, you're right. That, that opens up a a whole other door that uh, we can't hold the space for today. No, yeah. That's a whole nother. Yeah. But I do appreciate you bringing it to the table because I think it is a reflection of them uh, men not being able yet to feel seen or have a safe space to go. And I know that word, those words together even have a feminine, uh, overtone a nurturing overtone that some people will reject if they if they're rejecting that kind of of gentle loving touches that come with a good therapist who's not afraid to to hold someone accountable but yet it comes from a place of, of nurturing one to help to have to be able to hold that space so they're feeling safe enough to to explore when it's really uncomfortable right so, Carla I actually think you just brought up an amazing theme that I don't know if you want to go with but it's a really heavy one, but I do think it gets taught in religious circles, which is what is allowed to be considered masculine and feminine. Oh, that's so great. Well, we, right now we've actually been writing the uh, workshop for the divine feminine and all of the internalized misogyny and what we, what the, the, the things that we hold. So, but yeah, you're absolutely right. That just that alone of, of how, how we process those things. From the, from the colors we wear, 
to the words we use, from the cars we drive, all of that is- So what's interesting about this, Carla, is like, I actually think we can heal so much more collectively if we embrace, honestly, me embracing my masculinity as well as my femininity, because I am not- binary. Like I, I don't identify as non-binary, but I am not binary. I have a, there's a reason why some of the cultures have the word two spirit because it literally means there's this collective energy and integrated energy. And neither of those are rejected. They're honored. Some of them come out more prominently, but they're honored in ourselves, right? And so I think of men and I, and this is what's very sad is women can have masculine energy. They can freely express themselves. And yes, sometimes there's, you know, like terms that people throw around when someone comes at them with masculine energy. And many times they're disservice to the LGBTQ community. And at the same time, I think of the dynamic that men get when they show up with feminine energy. And I don't even know if I want to, like we can label it that, but almost honoring that side of them as saying, I want to nourish. I want to process. I want to hold space. I want to create and cultivate meaningful, layered, complex relationships. And men are obviously capable of that. And many of them do that. Sometimes they're risking being called whatever, like whatever derogatory term that you want to align with a feminine energy is. I'm sure there's like a million things that people call each other, but it's this idea of if they lean into it too far, they're risking that masculine facade. And why I was saying this ties so much into the religious aspect, because yes, we can speak on that collective general term. And at the same time, religion does not do men any favors no. for how they can embrace feminine energy because they never get even taught a feminine God. Mm-hmm. They never get taught feminine divinity. They get taught variations of like feminine creatures, but how many, the Madonna and the whore, the, um, you know, the, 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 what the bleeding woman or the women that aren't able to be touched or they're the harlots or like the, all of these like biblical narratives of what women are. It's like, if not majority of them are sexualized energy, like it's coming from a sexual energy. Okay. Or if they're not, it's passive. It's, it's they're, they're there and they're nourishing and they're nurturing and they're here and what, and it's just this energy that's like not resonating with that, like really dominant, you know, come at everyone with force to be reckoned with. And so when people get fed duality, right. When we, and I don't know, I think we talked about Richard War, Roar, I love Richard War. Mm-hmm. Um, when they get fed duality, they think they have to choose. Yes. They have to choose because I either am masculine or I get called all of these terrible things at the expense of me feeling more aligned with who I am. So you, and you brought up the the narratives inside the Bible and the sexualized content that actually marginalizes and somewhat dehumanizes women and subjugates them certainly to a lesser role. But I, I, I feel like I have to mention the one that probably angers me the most is when we talk about um, Sodom and Gomorrah. And when um, the visitors came, they always make a big 
they being the people who want to weaponize the Bible to dehumanize the LGBTQIA plus community, they use that story in a way that says that it was all about destroying those cities because of the sin of, of, of homosexuality, which is absolutely not the case. The sin was a lack of hospitality. But are we going to keep skirting over the fact that Lot offered his daughters, his virgin daughters, in place of the, the men that the townspeople were asking for so they could, quote, know them, as the Bible puts it. And yet, are we, are, is anybody going to talk about this, that, that women had such a, a small value? But that's intentional. That is intentional that they raise the story and make it magnified to be about homosexuality. But the fact that women were being offered in place, which they would have been murdered um, for the, this, the townspeople entertainment, that that was okay because the, the, the sacred thing to do was to protect the guests, which were godly visitors. And it, when I, 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 it just enrages me that no one ever talks about that, but that is intentional. Because the sin is homosexuality and women, well, you know, you know your role. Just keep, be quiet and do as the males in your house tell you to do. We'll stop there for that. I have one more question. We're going a little long, but this has been fascinating. I really appreciate your, everything that you have offered in such a passionate and, of course, knowledgeable way. But I want to ask you one question. You did say, let's not talk about my spirituality but you obviously have, have been immersed in a religion that you have deconstructed from. And not only have you deconstructed from it, you have thrived in your authenticity. It shows in your videos. It shows in your passion. I can recall a, a video where you were explaining, um, I believe it was like being uh, with anxiety and you ramped up and you poured the water into an already full cup. That is fascinating. Please go find that video. She, she did it. Jamie did it several months ago. but. What has your journey, you don't have to go into details about oh, what right. you believe, but what has your journey from your past taught you about where you are with your spirituality? Anything in there in that question that feels like you want to answer? That's how I would like to close our time together. So, yeah, I think I mentioned that just to be mindful of time, because I definitely wanted to share this. Um, it's more or less like applying it to the right question. So this okay. is exactly when I would do that. Um, okay. So I'm trying to think of when I really started this, I would probably say it really started about probably five years ago, roughly, and we're not going to go into all of it, but <laughs> probably about five years ago, I started to hold space for things that I never held space for. And I would probably credit a mentor that I had when I was doing graduate work. And he would just hold space for questions. He would just bring up things like, well, why do you think like that? Or, or what, like, and he would, he would purposefully try to get me to defend things. And I remember this moment because he would bring up some like really, I don't know, topic that was heavy. And I remember defending it. And as I was defending it saying, I don't even like knowing that I didn't even like really believe what I was, what I was saying. 
And I was saying it so passionately. And I was like, I don't even believe this. Like, this isn't even authentic. And I remember that because you and whoever's listening to this, you are the best gauge. You usually can tell when something comes out of your mouth that's complete BS. I'm not going to swear in here, but completely made up. Like, you're just like, this is not real. This is not authentic. And your mind will call you out. Even if you want to ignore that voice, your mind will call you out. So that was a very, very powerful moment for me because once I was able to come to terms with like, you're now in the, you're in a facade stage of this now. Like it doesn't resonate at all anymore. And you're now just playing the part because you're showing up, you're defending something you don't really believe. And what is that? What kind of life is that? You know? And then, you know, I kept going to church which was like me trying to keep it all together. Like, just keep going to church. Don't, don't stop going to church. And I remember this moment so, so well. I, for some reason, I think this was part of that divine self speaking through, but I was in church and I had my kids and my husband was there and we're sitting down and I had been to church. I don't even know how many times I've been to church in my life that thousands probably like I'm sitting here like how many times I've been in church and for some reason that day it was almost like a light switch went off and I like opened my eyes and I feel like I can get chills right now talking about but it's like I opened my eyes for the first time and I looked around and I said in my mind almost a voice echoed and it was it was almost tangible like I if like I could record it in my voice saying you don't belong here anymore Mm. like you don't belong here anymore this is not you anymore. And it was this visceral part of me acknowledging that who I thought I was has slowly evolved into something else. And I had a choice. I had to honor who I was evolving into, or I would have to force myself back into a mold that I don't fit anymore. And I feel like I could cry right now, but it was, it is That is why so many people come to me struggling with where they go next, because I've once heard that, like, I work with a bunch of clinicians and we always collaborate. And one of the best definitions I've ever heard of trauma is a ripping apart of who you once defined yourself to be. Mm -hmm. So if you define yourself as, I don't know, like innocent and someone robbed you of your innocence, there's trauma. If you thought you were strong and someone robbed you of your vision of strength, that's trauma. Like anything that takes away from the integrity of who you thought you were can, in theory, resonate as trauma. So religious trauma is so real because you defined yourself for so many years, if not people who are listening, who are 40, 50. So however, whenever they're doing this, this might have been their entire identity their entire life. And for someone sits there and says, I'm not this person anymore. You have to work to redefine who you've become. And it's very, very overwhelming at first. And it takes time to unlearn and untangle. And it takes a lot of work to be gentle because many faith systems do not allow for self-compassion do not allow for self-nourishment and self, um, 
restoration and self-cultivating, like all of these things that come from the inner depths of who you are, that doesn't have space. That There's no space for that in religious institutions that say, we tell you who you are, we tell you how to think, we tell you when to do this, when to do that, how to do this, when to not do this. And so the fact that when you lose that institution or that structure, whatever system that is, when I tell you it was beyond terrifying for me to try to define that for myself, it was and is still probably the scariest thing I've ever done. And it led to a lot of pain. And so I'm being honest with your listeners because it is not the easiest track to deconstruct. Many times people will say it's just easier to stay in this system. Oh, and thank And in some thanks. regard, exactly. And in some regard, this is their own, this is their own journey. Like there's nothing we can do other than them just coming to terms with where they're at right now, right? And so I tell people who are listening, like, it is hard. It's scary, but it's the best work you'll ever do. And that's one of the things you hear me say all the time on TikTok. It is self-work is the best work. It's the best work that you'll ever do waking up every day because it's what will lead you to the most authentic version of yourself. And what happens in the midst of all of that journey is things fall, things fall apart things come together, friendships go to the wayside, family dynamic shift. And to know that you are on the other side of that authentic, to me is the greatest treasure. It's the greatest treasure because I've said this in some variation, but I'm like, you, you wake up with yourself every day. You walk with yourself every day. Your internal voice is there with you every day. So to work on that authenticity to live with something that resonates instead of constantly creates dissonance is the hardest, but the most beautiful thing we'll ever do. That That's beautiful. Uh, have you noticed that Jamie's a preacher and she doesn't know it? You're magnetic, my friend. And this has been amazing. This might be a record for how long one of my podcasts. I'm so sorry. Yeah, we don't. Know. Oh, listen, I am honor. There was no place where I was going to cut off anything that you said, because this has been, we have been to church, we have been in session. And I, I, I charge my listeners to listen and re-listen to Jamie's words, because this is foundational for wherever you are in your walk to authenticity. It has to start inside and you've got to take those first steps. Jamie Mailer, thank you so much. Tell my listeners how they can work with you and please talk about your workshop. Okay. So if you want to work with me, there's a couple of different ways. I would say, just start with my website, recollectedself.com. I'm sure she'll tag it in the show notes, but um, that's probably the easiest way to just see what I offer. I offer one-on-ones coaching. Obviously, if you're in New, if you're in New York, um, you can work with me in the therapeutic elements. Um, the workshops are designed to be live and interactive. So they're just launched and the ones that probably will interest, actually both of them may be of interest to whoever's listening, but one of them is related to all around 
religious deconstruction. And that will kind of walk everyone through different prompts, exercises, things to kind of nourish that journey for you. And then the other one is all related to self-awareness. And they actually can tie in really well together. But if you want to, you know, like you look at it, but self-awareness, if you've ever been on my TikTok, I like to challenge that authentic voice. And so many times people don't know how to find that in general terms, not even related to religion. And that authentic voice comes with holding space and allowance energy. You're going to hear me say that if you ever go on my page. Allowance energy is the most powerful energy because it asks you to sit with things that you've never held space for. So Self-awareness is key. If you ever are doing any type of self-work, I always tell people start on self-awareness because self-awareness is extremely layered. And then we have the religious deconstruction uh, workshop that is ready and ready and it's launching and it's going at the end of August. That's when I'm doing the workshop. So join and I will see you at the, at the workshop if you want to come. Check it out at recollectedself.com. Uh, Jamie, once again, thank you so much. I'll close us out here. Okay, beloveds, I'm honored to be in this space with you and I pray you receive something. I know I did because the teacher teaches what she needs to hear, but today the teacher was Jamie. And again, thank you so much. And now beloveds, go in peace and be at peace and go in love and may you be loved. Go and know that others are on this journey with you and you are not alone. You are seen and deeply and unconditionally loved just the way you are. Blessings on your week and we will see you soon. Bye for now. Hey everyone, it's Rev Carla. So I get the honor of doing the outro this week for the podcast. I wanted to say how much I enjoyed interviewing Jamie Mailer. I hope you found so much inspiration and information for you, especially for those of you who are deconstructing from your religion. It's so, so important that we help each other and we find each other. And that's why I decided to do the outro because I am so excited to help Jamie launch her podcast called Unlearned, a journey through religious deconstruction. Now, Jamie is just getting started with this podcast, but she is compiling all kinds of stories and experiences that are going to resonate deeply with you. And as a licensed therapist, she'll be able to bring a very unique and healing perspective. So be sure to tune in to Unlearned to learn more about religious deconstruction. You can also find Jamie at recollectedself.com and we will also post all of that information on the show notes. Thank you so, so much. Have a great day.